Here we go. There it is. It is episode 47 of Stick to Hockey Live, north of the border from the firstperiod.com. There he is. That's Anthony DeMarco, everybody. What's going on, Ant? Not much. Uh, doing this uh, kind of a retro version. My my computer crapped out today, so no uh, high-quality mic, no high-quality audio, but uh, I'm here on the phone, and uh, uh, thank you for dealing with me as uh, my pilgrimage is kind of coming through today, eh? <laughs> well, the thing is, it's like it doesn't even sound that much different. That's pretty amazing. You gotta love those uh, Apple uh, earbuds, eh? Yeah, good quality good stuff. Yeah, good. Um, coming off All Star, what would you think of All Star Weekend? I, I watched very little of it because it, it's my way of revolt against the notion of three on three, which I hate. Oh, you hate three on three? You're not fan of why? Because it's just not hockey, in your opinion. Is it can pretty- be hockey because it can happen in a regular game if you okay. have penalties. But um, I just don't think – look, the, the whole spirit of three-on-three was ruined after a couple of years because coaches just choked it out. And I just yeah. don't – I don't like it. It's it, It's unnatural to me. It's too much ice to cover with three players on each team. Well, look, I think three-on-three is gimmicky, but that's pretty much what All-Star Weekend is. And I think this year, especially in Fort Lauderdale with all, like, you know, the golf kind of things, that golf tournament with Goudreau and Robertson, and then you had, like, the the shoot, the dunk thing where you have to hit the surfboards and, like, your partner would fall in in the tank of water. And, look, I get it. It's for the casual fan. It's for the younger fans. You're trying to make it an entertainment spectacle. I get it that it's not really supposed to be the actual quality of the game, but I don't know. I remember a time when you would watch the all-star game and not to say that they would be running each other through the boards or, you know, really like trying to hurt one another, really trying to win, but there was some competitive to it, competitiveness to it. You know, even the Owen Nolan point in the all-star game, yeah. uh, like I just think there must be a way to have some form of competitiveness and not completely compromise the integrity of the sport uh, or the actual game of hockey, just trying to make it so gimmicky and appeasing. Like, I don't know if it's going back to North America versus world, so you can get some some type of animosity. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure the, the revenue would uh, speak otherwise, but I really think they need to overhaul this thing completely. See, the problem is, is it's in season, and GMs don't want their players going too hard because they don't want, and these are their top players because they're yeah. all-stars, to get hurt. And then the other, like, I mean, look at the Pro Bowl. It's a fucking flag football game now. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's where it's gone. So, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I don't like all-star games to begin with. I don't, I, I get the, why you need to have them because they're great for sponsors and it is a spectacle for the league. It's just, it's just not something I get into anymore. I mean, I remember back in like the late 80s and early 90s, you know, Gretzky and Lemieux and Coffee and, you know, these guys like, playing together with these super lines was was awesome but you know i'd rather see canada cup or world cup of hockey and see those lines combined that way but um you know because i'd love to see a line with you know you know a guy like austin matthews on team usa yeah you know that kind of thing but anyway uh, i digress it it was uh all-star weekend flyers had their bye week as well um you know one of the things that came out last weekend was this that the ratings are down 22% for the NHL year to year. And the average households is down, I guess about like 80,000 average per where it was at this point last season. Why do you think it's down? 
In, I'll speak like personally right off the bat. I, I think that, and a lot of people have talked about this too, so this isn't like a completely original thought, but I think the way the scheduling has kind of gone in the last number of years where you have to play each team home and away, so twice, and you're only playing like your division rivals a lot of the time, like three or four times, I think a lot of the animosity has been sucked out. Like I remember, I think it was the 06-07 season or 07-08, the Flyers played the Penguins eight times. Like, you were facing those guys, like, once every ten games, pretty much. So there was true animosity. But now, like, uh, like aren't the Flyers not going to play the Rangers the rest of the way or something like that? No, like, they played them at Madison Square Garden earlier this season. They don't, play, they don't go back to the Garden at all. They play there once. Well, that, to me, is crazy. Bananas. Like, there, there's no more, like, natural rivalries. And I know that I guess we could tie the playoff format into this as well. And, you know, I uh, like I could be mistaken, but I think they did the entire playoff format based on the Flyers Penguins series in 2012 because mm-hmm. they saw how much viewership that generated and the bl- bad blood and the on- animosity. But then you go around and you configure the schedule in a way that kind of contradicts that. And like, who cares that the Flyers go play the, the Seattle Kraken twice with a home and away? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. you have play every team every year and i think like back in the like 15 20 years ago you didn't do that i think they need to look at it because the notion that you play every team home and away like i get the principle of it because every home building should be able to see Connor mcdavid yeah right so that makes sense but in a 32 team league by doing that you've now limited the amount that you can play your division now what they've done though is they've they've given too much weight to the conference. Yeah. So if you're gonna play everybody once, then give weight to the division and like the Atlantic division, play those teams just once home and away. I and agree. play your division more. That that's where they gotta gotta revamp this. And like Crosby said too, you know, the playoffs should be one through eight. And I totally agree. Yeah. Some people say one through sixteen, but the travel is just too insane, can be too insane for that. In a first-round matchup, it could be, you know, the Los Angeles Kings taking on the Carolina Hurricanes. And you can't do that in a first round. (laughs) Or, or like, Florida versus Vancouver. Yeah, if that were to take place. Like, that would be insane, right, amount of travel in in a first-round matchup. Because, you know, the grind of a Stanley Cup round by round by round is insane. You know, the three-on-three and the shootout is another part. Like, I did this whole podcast last week on Flyers Daily, but the three rules I would change in the NHL and first of all it was three on three shootout and then and you know the other one is you look at you know in playing everybody one time in the season you need more of these division scar tissue matchups because bitching about New York or Pittsburgh and that rivalries that can develop you're just not getting them right now and I know the Flyers haven't been good in playing like super meaningful games and playoff series is really where scar tissue takes place in a best of seven. Yeah. But geez. Um, what'd you think of the, you know, Flyers are going to play the Islanders tonight. Horvat deal uh, eight times, eight and a half. He's what? 27. You knew Lou was trading for him. He wasn't doing it as a rental and Lou's a long-term outlook guy. You know, he acquires Pajot significant trade for them and then extends him long-term. He does the same thing here with Bo Horvat. That's what Lou does if he's going to trade for a guy. What do you think of the deal? 
I mean, I think it's par for the course. I think that they were looking, I think the Islanders wanted to get him eight by eight. He gets that extra half a million dollars a year. I mean, I, I think it's, and look, Lou Lamoureux said as much, it's too much money, too much term for a guy like Bo Horvat, who, yes, he's having a career year, but I think that on a very good hockey team, Bo Horvat is a second line center. I don't think he's as good defensively as maybe his reputation would lend itself to believe, but he's still a very good player. And I think he's a guy that can help your power play. He's the type of player that I think could also probably shift to wing rather flawlessly. Like, I wonder if he's I agree. Going, yeah, I, I really wonder if he's going to be shifted to the left wing to play with a Matthew Barzal because that's pretty much what they need, right? Like a shoot first yeah. guy to play with Barzal. And they're relatively deep down the middle with guys like Brock Nelson and J.G. Pajot. So they're going to have some flexibility there with a guy like Barzal, certainly help their power play, and they needed it, right? You know, like, I can't say for certain, but I get the feeling that Lou Lamorello is probably trying to save his job here. You know, this is the second season in a row where they've had a really disappointing run here. They are still in the thick of the playoffs here, but after going to back-to-back Eastern Conference Finals and really giving Tampa a strong push in 2020 and 2021, you were really expecting more for the New York Islanders. And I think in some ways, this is still a very good team, you know, they arguably have the best goaltender in the front runner for the Vesna Trophy and Ilya Sorokin. I like their defense long term with guys like Pelic and Ryan Pollock and um, Noah Dobson. And I really like Matthew Barzal. He's not elite, but I think he's still a very good first line center in this league. But they needed a shot in the arm. And uh, obviously it was a bit too much money. But I think that what they gave up for him was very digestible. I don't think it was a massive haul by any stretch. And they really needed a top six forward. Yeah. Yeah. They, well, they took care of that and, you know, they lose Pavillier in the deal, but um, yeah, I mean, you, you like that combination for the long term with Barzel and, and Bo Horvat and they got some other pieces as well. And, you know, one of the things I, I saw some of your tweets about maybe, you know, the Flyers considering a buyout on Cam Atkinson, you look at, you know, there's been some rumors out there that some teams may be looking at Kevin Hayes, you know, Dylan Larkin's still not signed. There's a lot of variables out there. Larkin, we've talked about Larkin here before, that he, he'd be a good target for the Flyers. Now, we're not at the offseason yet. We've got a final 31 games to go. There's a lot to find out in these final 31 games, whether that's about Tippett or Frost or Farabee. Uh, continuing to find out about Cam York, some to some extent, Travis Sanheim and Ivan Provorov and Rasmus Ristolainen, TK. There's a lot to find out here still. Is Hart going to hold up for the full 82? Uh, he, I think he's had a great year, um, but w- what's the biggest storyline? You know, let's look at it both near and long-term. Let's start long-term. What's the big storyline that you think is going to develop here over the Flyers over, you know, before the puck drops on the 22 or 23, 24 season? I think the big storyline here is that if they have a good chance to add a player of significance this summer, they will. And I've been kind of piecing things together because I, I was skeptical of, are we going to have another stabilization year? Like, what will next year look like? Are we just going to have another year to try and grow and build through youth? But, you know, I've heard chatter over the last 24 hours by people I trust that this is in no way saying that they're going to go balls to the wall and pursue this guy at all costs or even trade for him in season. But I've heard chatter that if Dylan Larkin makes it to free agency, he's a guy that the Flyers are likely going to pursue. And look, we're still very far away from that. These aren't serious discussions, but I have, again, heard rumblings that they were scouting him last week. And 
I again, I don't think this is a situation where they're going to try and get him in season. And look, this might be a moot point. Maybe you know, as soon as this podcast ends, Steve Eiserman gives Larkin nine million dollars over eight years, and then you know, this is a completely irrelevant conversation. But I mean, based on history of Eiserman negotiating with his top line center and his team captain, as we saw with Steven Stamkos in 2016. This is something that I think Eiserman's going to play hardball with and something that may spill all the way into June. And who knows, maybe Larkin's going to hold out. Like with Horvat off the off the um off the uh the market here, he's far and away the best pending UFA forward or probably a player unless I'm missing someone. So Dylan Larkin I think is probably a 9 million dollar player. He makes it to UFA, he probably can sniff that 10 million dollar mark, but I think that if he makes it to UFA, Based on the chatter I've heard over the last 24 hours or so, he's a player the Flyers will likely pursue. You know, the interesting thing about it is you go back to the Stamkos. You know, there was a lot of conversation about Stamkos going to Toronto and some really big money deals on there. But the the difference here is, is that Larkin is in Detroit. Stamkos was in Tampa. And the difference is the, the state tax, quality of life in Tampa, the team he had around him far different than the situation in Detroit. Yeah. You know, it, it, you can stay in Tampa for a lower number and bring home the same or more because yeah. of the tax situation. That's not the case in Detroit. So that's, that could be part of the equation. Now, big part of that too, in Larkin being a target ant uh, really depends in, in some ways on what Sean Couturier is. Are you hearing anything on Couturier? Because, you know, we're about at that window about three and a half months, I think right now from when he went out, the, the timeline was kind of three, four months for him to get back on the ice and start practicing again. You know, I think it's really important that they see him this year, that he plays a decent chunk of games, 18, 20 games. So you can go into the off season with the knowledge that, okay, he can hold up playing again because I don't think you can go into the off season with, the, with no knowledge and going. You know, we'll hear the same rhetoric again, right? Oh, he feels better than he's ever felt. I'm in the best shape of my life. Everything feels perfect. And then we go day to day, week to week, month to month. Another season. You know, I can't go through this anymore. You know what I mean? So I think it's paramount that he plays this year so we can find out, A, what he is. I'm not expecting him to be 100% this year. He hasn't played since December of 21. But I'd like to see him get back on the ice, start to knock some of the rust off and show that he can hold up. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the most I've heard on it is just kind of status quo, expect him to come back sometime in March. But I absolutely agree. I think you need to find out what Sean Couture is. And look, if that's even 75% of what he once was, and he's a 60 to 65 point center who can play second line and give you good defensive minutes, I think that's okay. I mean, it's not what you want. It's not what you were hoping for when you handed him an eight-year contract extension 18 months ago. But I think given the average annual value, and we talked about this a bit off air before we started recording, I think it's fair. And I think the salary cap is supposed to jump 87 to 87 and a half million in 2024 and then get to 93 million in 2025. So, I mean, if Sean Couture is ultimately basically a better defensive version and overall player than Kevin Hayes is right now, I think $7.75 million will be digestible. But again, he hasn't played in 15 months. He's had several back surgeries. Like 
there it might be too optimistic to have him to expect him to come back and be even 75% what he was just was but if you can kind of figure out that okay Sean Couturier it can be a second line center and give you that 60 points a year and a strong defensive guy and then you already have some clarity on what Noah Cates is maybe he's a long-term bottom six guy you see what Den YA is doing in Lehigh I think still think he's we're not going to see him at all this year as they should, but maybe he can kind of be a three, four center as well. And then if you have clarity that he, that Couturier is a long, can be a long-term two C, maybe you're saying like, man, like if we add a legit one C, which Dylan Larkin is, he's not an elite center, but he's a one C, maybe it's worth pursuing. And obviously a lot of other things would go into that, like the salary cap and whatnot. But I mean, I do think that you're absolutely right that finding out what Katori has left and what he can be for the foreseeable future will affect a lot of their decisions moving forward. Okay, so let's play this out real quick. If Katori is that, what you said, he comes back and he's a 60, 65.2C, you know, Dylan Larkin comes in as your 1C, uh, you know, maybe Noah Cates is your third line center, moves Lawton to the wing. Yeah. And then and you have Konechny and you have Tippett. Um, Got to figure out what you do with Frost here in this situation because is he? At, I, they want him to be a center. I guess he's a center. Is is there a spot for him if you're getting a guy like Dylan Larkin or is he trade bait? Uh, and then you have Cutter Gauthier who they've kind of said they want him to be a center but would be just fine on the wing, especially just coming into the NHL, whether it's next year or the year after if he goes back to BC for another year and then you couple that with, you know, a pretty decent first round pick this year. Now, all of a sudden, yeah, you don't have Connor Bedard or you don't have this elite, you know, Austin Matthews type player, but that's a pretty good team because you have all the other boxes checked. And then you got to look at the D and obviously that top spot on the right side of the top pairing is, Still a big question mark is that Cam York. That's maybe a bit of a stretch, but um, then they could be on their way if if you can make some maybe a sa- savvy hockey trade in the offseason to take care of one of those spots with some of the LTIR money that you're dealing with. Well, I mean, let's again yeah. play this game. You bring in Dylan Larkin. Katori is that 60, 65 point second line center. Or even if he's a 55 to 60 point guy. I mean, I think that you have enough offense on your wings and it, a lot depends on what Cutter Gauthier is. But if you're looking at a, let's say, three to five year top six of some combination of Gauthier, Larkin, Konechny, Farabee, Katori, and Tippett, that's not too bad. Yeah. Like, again, a lot rides on Sean Couturier here and a lot is riding on what Cutter Gauthier will end up being. But if Cutter Gauthier, as many have compared him to Pierre-Luc Dubois, if he, he could give you that kind of level offense, and I don't think that that would be like a world-beater first line, but I think that's a first line that other teams have to take notice of. And, I mean, you do want those generational elite players. You always want a Matthews or a Dreisaitl or a McKinnon or a McDavid. But, I mean, the Blues didn't have that player. This is, we're going back a while now, but the Boston Bruins, like Brad Marchand wasn't that elite player back in 2011 when they won the Cup. You know, their first line was Lucic, Krejci, and Nathan Horton. None of those guys were elite players, but that's still a very good first line. Yeah, and you so come up with like a Bergeron line after that. Yeah, with centering Marchand and Recchi. 
And you know, I've heard a lot over the last twenty, uh, over the last twelve months or so, that they've likened the way St. Louis built their team in 2019 as kind of like that overall depth with some dynamic players in there with legit top line talent, but maybe not that generational world beater like a Matthews or a McDavid. So, I mean, there's a path here. And I do think that as we've discussed many times, they have a lot of good organizational depth. Like, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday and they were saying, you know, like Brink is coming, Forster's coming. Maybe they're still, maybe they're only third line players. I think at that point, that's kind of like, the um the expectation for Forster and Brink with Forster having a bit more of that upside but you start looking at all these depth players that they have coming along the way and you bring in a market and you're saying like look again he's not a world beater but he's probably a top 15 center in the NHL he's probably in that same realm as like a Barzal or a Shifley or players of that ilk maybe an Elias a more dynamic offensive player than Elias Lindholm is but I think it's just important to remember, remember is that you don't need that generational talent as your top forward. It certainly helps and makes things easier, but there are examples of just having bona fide first line players, kind of like what the Flyers had when they went to the cup final in 09, 10. Mm-hmm. You know, the funny thing is like Barzell's a guy that like wows people. Cause you see him and like, like to me, he's like, there's so much skill there, but he hasn't just put it all together yet. He said the one good year where he averaged over a point per game was that his second year in the league. He had so. like, yeah, 85 points that year. But since then, you know, 62, 60, 45 in 55 games, that's a good year. Uh, 59 last year in 73 games. And then this year he's got 43. I mean, he's a really good player. Then you look at Larkin. Larkin's had, uh, you know, year two, he had 32 points, not great. 63 in 82 games in 17, 18. Then he had 73 in 76 games, 53 in 71, 23 in 44, 69 last year in 71 games. So they're very comparable players, I think. Um, and certainly, and you know, Larkin helps obviously with team speed. <laughs> yeah. But he can fly. Sure. <laughs> and, and I average his point totals out over his career. And I believe he had the, the his best year was, I believe, 70 something points. But uh, yeah, I 79. Think, yeah. And if you average his points out per 82 games, he's basically a 60 point per uh, per season player. That's what he's averaged. But he's also been playing on Detroit. And now maybe he's gotten better line mates over the last several years with Bertuzzi. But even Bertuzzi is a first line guy. He's dealt with injuries. This year, you you have a new younger blood in a Lucas Raymond, but he still, I think, has a lot of ways to go. So you're looking at kind of comparable players in Larkin and Barzal into what level they are, where tier they're in, and the fact that they haven't had a whole lot to work with in terms of like first line quality line mates. So it begs the question: is like what could a Larkin give you if he's playing with a Travis Konechny or if he's playing with? Again, assuming that Goatsy turns into a top-line player, which is a big assumption, what could he do with, like, centering two young guys like that? Like, Travis Konechny, like, I don't think he can be your best player, even your second-best player on a top line. But I do think he's a first-line player if he's kind of, like, third on the totem pole there. So there's something to think about there. And the thing is, is that Larkin is far and away probably the best option in terms of free agency ads or even trade ads unless – Vancouver's willing to part with a guy like Elias Pedersen, but if they're doing that, they're going to, and it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. So you would kind of be, would you be trading three, four quarters to, you know, get a buck? So 
I mean, Larkin's a very interesting option, and I think the fact that they're willing to pursue him if he gets to free agency kind of lends itself to what are we expecting this team to be next season. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that there's any way they're going to trade Elias Patterson. I just don't see it. No. I know it's a shit show out there, but, you know, Jim Rutherford's not. He's a player. He's a hell of a player. Yeah. Um, You know, you looked at the UFA class this year. You know, you got obviously Kane and Taves, but, you know, you're long in the tooth there, 34 and 35 years old. Tarasenko is now a 31-year-old player, going to be 32. ROR, 32. There's a lot of guys north of 30. Klingberg signed that one-year deal. I mean, Pasternak's not getting out of Boston. Uh, Yeah. Debrinkit is available at 20, 25 years of age if he gets to market. And then, you know, obviously Larkin you brought up and, you know, there's other players in there, whether, I mean, Jesus, Pierre-Luc Dubois, is Torts going to want him back? <laughs> like for, for me, it's unlikely. Well, like, look, I mean, if we're counting RFAs, obviously Timo Meyer, but I yeah. mean, his qualifying offer, I think, is like $10 million, and someone's going to trade for him. It seems like he's destined for New Jersey at this point. Yeah. But, I mean, he's certainly a player. If they could somehow finagle that, I think would make a lot of sense. Uh, but, I mean, out of UFAs, like, they're just – nobody really makes sense to me aside from Dylan Larkin. Like, if mm-hmm. you can bring in a Dylan Larkin, I think that you might as well just continue building from within. And certainly you have a uh, – you have the route of going down hockey trades. But I just – First line centers, I just I can't see it. Maybe the top pairing right D. That's something that I think that you could probably do. You could find via trade. It'd certainly be hard, as we've seen Chuck Fletcher endlessly try and plug that hole since he arrived in Philadelphia in 2018-19. But I mean, like again, I haven't heard this. This is just spitballing. But based on what's going on in St. Louis, like would they be open to moving a guy like Colton Pareko? Like. Mm-hmm that's kind of like a name that jumps out to me as what would fit, check that box and maybe would be realistic based on what is going on in St. Louis right now. Do they look to make a change? And they have a lot of defensemen locked up long-term on big time money. He's going to turn 30. They've struggled the last two years more. Well, mostly this year, you already have Justin Falk who kind of runs that team as the number one defenseman in a lot of ways. Krug too. You have Krug, Scandella's coming back from injury next year. So just extended um, uh, the names escaping Bortuzzo, but he's more of a third pairing guy. But the, like the, in terms of hockey trades, and again, that's just speculation, nothing more than that. Pareko would maybe be a guy you could try and target. Um, let's wrap up on this one. Um, there's a little bit of chatter out there that Kevin Hayes could be available. We're 24, 25 days, I think so, from uh, the NHL trade deadline coming up on March 3rd, which is a Friday. Um, three weeks in this Friday coming up, so we're 25 days away. Is Kevin Hayes here beyond March 3rd? That's going to be tricky. I think he's gone by the summer. You know, I was first mm-hmm. to report last month that he is that the Flyers are willing to move him. I don't think that's a big secret. <laughs> I think anyone could have drawn that conclusion. I think the question here is, and what may throw a wrench into this, it, well, there's several things. For one, I've heard from the Flyers' standpoint is that they still feel like a lot of teams are trepidatious based on the term three years on this season. But more so than that is that the Flyers are going to have to retain. You know, I've heard that the sweet spot is going to be between four and $5 million in terms of what the Flyers, or sorry, they were going to have to retain between two and $3 million to make him a four to $5 million player. 
So let's say cut split the difference. You want to make him a four and a half million dollar play to really make him intriguing here. If the Flyers are eating two point six million dollars for the next three years, they want good value. Like this isn't a situation where they're going to eat you know a thirty percent of Hayes's money and trade him for a fifth round draft pick. I think that if they're eating that type of money, they're going to want a second round pick minimum. And I think that their their hope here, and this is just speculation, is that you're going to make Kevin Hayes a $4.5 million player who over the last two seasons has had his best offensive production of his career. And you're going to try and incite maybe a bidding war for teams that want cost certainty. Like, obviously, the low-hanging fruit is the Boston Bruins because he's from Boston. They could use another player to add on their third line with Charlie Coyle and Taylor Hall this season. And long-term, they're going to need some cost-efficient uh, centermen once Patrice Bergeron and Krejci leave this summer, and they're making, what, a combined $3 million? So you bring Kevin Hayes, you have him locked in the next three years at $4.5 million. You put him between Brad Marchand and David Posternock. Maybe he's a passable player, especially if the last couple of seasons' production holds true. I also think a team like Colorado, who has yet to replace their second-line players that they lost over the season, like Burakovsky and Nazem Kadri. But I think that's a team that would be more trepidatious about the term because you have the contract extension of Nathan McKinnon kicking in and there's a pending extension of Bowen Byram looming. But I do think there's a market for the guy. I think it's going to come down to how much the Flyers are willing to retain and how much they want in return for retaining that type of money. Yeah. I mean, that'd be the, that's the big thing. The more you retain, the better you get return wise too. And there's cost certainty if you've retained for that team and term certainty. And it's not that much term beyond this year. Well, I think it's more likely, like you said, that it's a move that is an off season move. Yeah. And, and not, yeah, I just don't know that it happens in season because it, there's a lot of mechanics to it, and that cap, that cap per, part of it is a big part of the equation. What about, one, what about D'Angelo? You know, D'Angelo is a guy that obviously he hasn't had a good season here. He's dragged down pretty much anybody he's played with, aside from that first month where he and Provorov were playing very well together, and he was playing, what, like 28 minutes a game. You know, <laughs> he, Provorov, Provorov's having a, a poor year, Provorov, get split from him, and now Provorov the last month and a half has looked like the old Ivan Provorov. You look at Travis Sanheim, the way his game is really torpedoed with Tony D'Angelo, but I just think that's a bad matchup. I think Travis Sanheim needs a bigger physical, physical guy like he was playing with Rasmus Ristolainen last year. I think playing with Ristolainen gave Sanheim more confidence and, you know, for not part of my French, but just gave him more fucking balls when he played yeah. off. And to jump into the play and get up the ice. Yeah, because I just think Ristolainen was a better fit, and I wonder how the new Ristolainen would look besides Sam. I think it would be better. Hundred <laughs> percent, it's even more responsible. I I think. And look, like Ristolainen, I know five on five, he's being deployed as the number five, but penalty kill wise, he's averaging the second most ice time per game. Mm-hmm. So he still is eating decent minutes and tough minutes. He has the lowest offensive zone start percentage, pardon me, uh, of any defenseman too, but. To swing back on Tony D'Angelo, uh, I wonder about the market because he is a guy that has a pedigree. You know, had a really good season last year playing on top pair with a guy like Jacob Slavin, who is a borderline elite defenseman in the NHL. So you have to take that into consideration. 
but he still played top pairing minutes and produced elite offensive numbers on a very good and one of the best teams in the NHL in the Carolina Hurricanes. Yeah. And you have, again, that cost certainty. But again, because of the salary cap, it's probably only going to go up a million or two this summer. Are teams going to want to commit $5 million to a player who, although he had a really good season last year, is struggling this year? Like, I brought up just speculatively, like maybe the the Minnesota Wild look at him, you know, probably not a fit, but maybe a team like that, that is so tight against the cap and they just want cost certainty on a player that maybe has a top four offensive ceiling. But I think if the Flyers really tried, they could find a market for him. But I think the other part about this is, is that then you still need someone to play that right side. Like, Mm -hmm. D'Angelo hasn't been good, but it's not like they have anyone waiting in the wings. Like, I don't think Ronnie Adder's there yet. Justin Braun's probably not going to be a flyer in a few weeks, and he's certainly not a long-term fit on this team. I don't think they have a big appetite to recall a guy like Igor Zamula, especially if he's playing on the right side. So the Flyers still need him in season as tough as he's played. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, who's in the wings as that right side guy? Does it make sense to trade him to Minnesota for Dumba, even though Dumba's expiring? I mean, see what Dumba could be here with Provorov. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth a shot if if that's a potential deal. Like, I know a lot. I love that as a long term solution, though. Neither do I, but you you get a free look at Dumba and you free up five million dollars on the books for next season. Bingo. That's the that's the thing. It's like a win-win. Like, again, I think Dumba, I'm not sure, again, if he's stylistically. Like, again, I think you kind of need a Pareko here. Like a low-event, all-defense type of guy. And big then body, too. Big body. In the past has had an offensive ceiling, dealt with injuries. I also wonder if over-deployment has been an issue with him because he's kind of been thrusted into a – like, he kind of, like, platoons as the number one with Justin Falk, but he's really taken on a lot more – uh, responsibility since Petro yeah. left. Yeah, when Petro was there, though, his deployment was perfect because you had Petro. Exactly, and he was that second pair guy, and he played alongside Joel Edmondson, and yeah. that like their de facto shot. Yeah. Joel Edmondson and and Colton Pareko were like Ryan McDonough and Eric Chernak in Tampa Bay, mm-hmm. and it worked. But then you, I think that Pietrangelo leaves, and they do bring in Justin Falk, and Falk has really helped with that. But you don't have like a stud one. You kind of are platooning them between the two. Yeah. So I think he would be a better fit. But uh, And one thing I will say before we, we wrap it up uh, in regards to the uh, the viewership, I think the salary cap is really hurting types yeah. of interest. Because you look at the NBA. Like Kyrie Irving asked for a trade and he's traded two days later. Yeah. You know, you don't see that in the NHL. And big trades generate too value. hard to move, guys. It's impossible. Like I was listening to Toronto Sports Radio last week, and the host Brian Hayes was saying Eric Carlson is the best defenseman in the NHL this year, but he can't be moved because of the salary cap. Yep. How he's so he's stuck when he can't be a you know a marquee player that's going to draw eyeballs because he's on a shit team and he can't get out of the shit team. Yeah, and I think it's absolutely crazy. Like, and yeah. even like a guy like Kevin Hayes, like Kevin Hayes is a good hockey player. I think he's proven that since, you know, specifically the last 12 months. But since he's come to Philadelphia, he's been a good ad. But because his contract is a bit too inflated, they have to move mountains to uh, to move the guy. And the, I other, think- the other thing, Ant, yeah. is you got a team in Chicago that drives NHL ratings that's trying to lose. 
Yeah. You got a team in Montreal that's in the toilet. You got a team in Philadelphia that's not a playoff team. Yeah. You have these really Detroit still not going to be a playoff team. These are key markets for the league. And yeah. Vancouver, another one. Although there's been a lot of drama around Vancouver and intrigue because it's just been a gong show. But when you got all of these key markets not not in the mix, like Dallas is a good team. It's a decent market for the NHL. You know, they're a good they're top team in the Central, top team in the Western Conference. But is that going to be something that moves the needle like Chicago, Philly, you know, Vancouver? No. Well, look, Pittsburgh's now descending, right? Yeah. Washington's descending. And look, I like I'm all for, you know, lower market teams doing well, but are is Carolina being a top tier team moving the needle at all? No. You know, like it's I think it's pretty telling that the second year Seattle Kraken are like one of the biggest revenue drivers in the NHL right now. Yeah. Like that, that's nuts to me. And, you know, again, like I, I get it. I get the parody. I know what Gary Bettman was trying to do with the salary cap to make it an even playing field for everyone, but it has really hurt a lot of, you know, the bigger market teams and, you know, like a team like Toronto, look how long it took them to figure it out. Yeah. And that's like the most, that's the biggest <clears throat> hockey market in the world, Toronto. And one of the richest franchises. How's the parity worked out for a team like Arizona? It, it was intended for teams like Arizona. And they're for they're sure. a shit team every year. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm in favor of the salary cap, but I've always said that you should be able to franchise tag one player that doesn't yeah. – and you can't franchise that tag – yeah. That doesn't cap. Yeah. And not that you could play around with that from year to year. Like, I think there would have to be set rules. Like, he had to have been drafted by your team – you can't change it. You can't change, uh, remove the franchise tag off of him until his contract is up or if he's traded. 75% of the contract is fulfilled, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Like you have to, like, so it will make teams really think about it. Like, okay, we're franchise tagging this guy for eight years and like we can't move him. Even yeah. if, like, like, just I'll give you an example. Like, let's say the Calgary Flames franchise tagged Elias Lindholm. And then they trade for Jonathan Huberto. Okay, I'm going to try and franchise tag Huberto. Well, you can't because he wasn't drafted by your team. Yeah. And your franchise player is still on your team. So I think there's ways around it while still keeping the salary cap in effect. But I just think that what we've learned, especially post-COVID with the flat cap, is that something kind of needs to be done because it's hurting interest league-wide. Yeah, no question about it. And great stuff. Uh, read and stuff on thefourthperiod.com. And uh, anything coming up this week? There's something uh, that's dropping the, this morning in regards to, you know, Dylan Larkin, the Flyers, how they're going to handle their, their younger players, what we could see at the trade deadline. So, yeah, something will be coming. Uh, if it's not already out, maybe uh, Dave already uh, put it up there. But uh, something. Let's go, Panyota. Fucking post it. That's it. Put the gear, <laughs> put the screws to him. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that is episode 47 of Stick to Hockey Live. We will join you later this week for more great hockey content. Leave us a five-star rating and review, and we'll talk to you next episode on Stick to Hockey Live. Have a great day, everybody. Enjoy the hockey tonight. Flyers back tonight against the Isles. If I say I don't-